The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. So, uh, Roshi, Shugan Roshi is in New Zealand, and um, so I'm offering some thoughts to you this morning. And um, wouldn't you know, what's been coming up for me is those two arrows meeting in midair. So in the identity of relative and absolute, which is a, a teaching that we chanted this morning, um, it's a teaching on, on the, the, that the fullness of um, our realization is in, in seeing the merging of our relative experience, um, our embodied self, our self that has thoughts and feelings and um, experiences and opinions, and um, that this is not other than our, our great Buddha mind, our great universal self, the um, self which we can't really give any words to because we'll always fall short. But um, the Dharma tries. Um, Buddha, we say, awake. And that um, those two arrows meeting in midair are, are the relative and the absolute, just like perfectly like, like wouldn't that be amazing to see such a sight? You, your, your breath, you'd go, <gasps> right? And yet that's what's happening all the time. That's what's happening all the time. So I wanted to look a little bit today at um, miracle, ordinary miracle. It's happening now. Uchiyama Roshi, who is a 20th century Japanese Zen teacher and the author of Opening the Hand of Thought, um, speaks about, um, we, he uses the phrase, we are the individual self living out the universal self. And um, for some reason lately, that's just felt like such a, a nice phrase. Um, and that's what practice is really trying to, um, it's like Zen practice is, 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 is giving us ways to train so that hopefully we realize that, but, but even if we don't realize that in sort of, you know, a, um, a, a way that may be satisfying to our intellect, that we're embodying it, that we're actually living that, and that just the living of that um, and I shouldn't say just, um, because it's kind of the whole thing. The living of it satisfies at a very deep level. That's peace of mind. I'm thinking about in the um, beginning of, uh, I think it's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. There's an um, introduction or something. I'm sure some of you have read that a lot more recently than me, but I'm just going to go for it, and you can tell me afterwards what I should have said. 
Um, that in the introduction, somebody's talking about encountering Suzuki Roshi and how you know humble he was and kind of like ordinary he was, and um, this person's sort of like asking him like, well, you never talk about Kensho, like why don't you ever talk about Kensho? And his wife is there and she says slyly, that's because he hasn't had it. And, um, <laughs> and there's a sort of moment in that, um, in that exchange that, as I recall, is, is kind of illuminating this like, when you're embodying the way, you don't really need to worry about like, oh, have I had Kensho or not? Because you're, you're, you're living it, you're already at the full fruit of the practice. Um, so, uh, here's um, a, a, few, a few lines from Jinzu, which is um, Kaz Tranahashi. This is from Shobogenzo, Dogen Zenji's teachings. Kaz Tanahashi translates as miracles, and other translations um, translate this fascicle as um, mystical power or spiritual power. So, midway through, um, uh, Dogen Zenji says, Layman Pong was an outstanding person in the ancestral seat. He not only trained with Matsu and Shitao, but met and studied with many enlightened teachers. One day he said, miracles are nothing other than fetching water and carrying firewood. Even if you do not know that miracles happen 3,000 times in the morning and 800 times in the evening, miracles are actualized. Those who see and hear the wondrous activities of miracles by Buddha Tathagatas do not fail to attain the way. Attaining the way of all Buddhas is always completed by the power of miracles. I think when we begin to recognize that um, our self isn't uh, so solid or so certain, um, sometimes that, that recognition can, can start to um, uh, leave some room for awe and wonder to start to seep in, like, okay then, who am I? I'm definitely having an experience here. <laughs> What's going on? This is what we're training to realize because it's the truth. Truth is liberative. It is good in and of its own sake. And living and acting from truth brings untold benefits that can reverberate through space and time. I'm remembering also, um, Daida Roshi used to, uh, with the Zen kids, inhabit this alter ego of the Wizard of Tremper Mountain. And, um, and at that time, the, the Zen kids, you know, there's sort of this myth and this lore that got built up around the Wizard of Tremper Mountain. Um, I think I remember once them like hiking up to the upper hermitage and they were told like, that's where the wizard lives. And 
Um, and then one day, I wasn't here for this, so this is totally like my recollection of other people's recollections, but one day Dido decided he was gonna make an appearance for the Zen kids as the Wizard of Tremper Mountain and like dressed himself up accordingly. And um, I think that I remember that there was dry ice involved, which is like so <laughs> amazing. Um, anyway, that like, it was like the back doors to the circular steps or something like opened and there was like smoke and then in came Dido as the Wizard of Tremper Mountain and kind of like blew the kids' minds. Um, and so somewhere in that, you know, very magical encounter, someone started to say like, show us your magic, show us your magic. And kind of in my recollection became sort of insistent about it, right? So <laughs> there's Dido like, okay, I don't, I don't know what was going on through his mind. Maybe he was totally unfazed, just contemplating what magic trick he would show. I don't know. But um, so the story goes is that he said, okay, you want to see a really good magic trick? Inhale. And now let it out. So I don't know what the kids thought of that. They probably weren't, weren't that impressed. But hopefully some of their parents were around and were like, took note. Um, yeah. So when, when we start to um, feel into our actual mysterious being, um, then, you know, what becomes, what's been hard and condensed has a chance to soften and open. What's been fearful or anxious or angry has a chance to relax and be at peace and at ease. We become better able to see what we actually need and really take care of ourselves. And we become better able to see what other people need and to show up and offer that. And we start to see like, oh, like always, I have a choice of whether I want to enter into an intimate, real contact with the 10,000 things, or whether I'm going to hold back, shut down, condense, go to my thoughts, disconnect. And it's not that that stepping into intimate contact is always comfortable. It's not. But it is alive, and there's a way in which actually joy and aliveness are the same thing, even when we're uncomfortable. When we're alive in it, there's a freedom of that flow of our original mind, which actually feels good, but good is too small of a word. So, you know, <laughs> Zen and patriarchy, I mean, I have to tell you that I think the true Zen 
is actually really like completely antithetical to patriarchy. We'll get there. I was rereading um, Audre Lorde's essay on the, um, the uses of the erotic, the erotic is power. And um, first I just want to say, don't get freaked out by the word erotic. Erotic. Are, are you all okay? I'm just saying that because I get a little freaked out by it. It sounds like a little too like sexual for the zendo or like whatever. And I recently shared my art practice with a friend and they were like, oh, I love it. It's so erotic. And I was like, oh my God, I showed it to the whole sangha, what? <laughs> but no, Audre Lorde is using the word erotic kind of like I'm using the word aliveness, kind of like I'm using the word joy. And in her, in her essay, which is really a feminist critique to a large degree, um, but with a deep spiritual um, thrust. She, she talks about how um, patriarchy, and one might add in their white supremacy culture, one might add in their capitalism, has kind of cut us off from the depths of our actual feeling world and, and is, is thereby limiting our capacity to actually feel the true pleasure and joy of aliveness by kind of flattening things out. And so she's talking about um, the erotic as this inner power that's associated with deep feeling, with embodiment, with presence, and with connection. And she's quite explicit in her essay to say, like, be careful because, you know, the sort of oppressive powers have tried to merge pornography and eroticism, and they're not the same thing. So we take it back. Um, but when, when, she, when she's writing about um, how she understands the erotic, I'm like seeing like, oh, this is like what I would call intimacy from within the Zen vocabulary, from within Zen language. And, and she talks about um, really landing within her own experience. Um, listening to music, writing a poem. And um, she says this, that there's an opening and a fearlessness which underlines her capacity for joy. And then she goes on to say, this experience is a measure of the joy which I know myself to be capable of feeling, a reminder of my capacity for feeling. And that deep and irreplaceable knowledge of my capacity for joy comes to demand from all my life that it be lived within the, inner, within the knowledge that such satisfaction is possible. And it doesn't have to be called marriage, nor God, nor an afterlife. So the way that I read that is um, that within our ordinary experience, We can touch in with that aliveness. We can touch in with that um, joy. And we can, um, we can touch in with the erotic. And we can um, then know, like, oh, if it's possible in this moment, like, why am I settling for sort of my, like, flattened, dried-out experiences? Because it's ours. It's something that we're actually doing that's bringing that forth. 
And I don't know if you can relate to that as a Zen practitioner. I mean, I have definitely felt like, you know, within the heart of Sashin, when, when things are opening up, like, okay, clearly, like, this is always how it is, and I'm the variable here, and, like, I would really like the whole of my life to um, uh, have, have the quality of this, like, settled, receptive, restful um, joy. And so that's inspiring. It's inspiring to me. And within Zen, we have, you know, the teachings of the Bodhisattva, which is like, if we start to taste this for ourselves, then um, the teaching is like, okay, be generous. Be generous. Don't just like hold it close. How do you share this? How do you actually encounter somebody else and help to meet them in such a way that they might make contact in a deep way with their life? That their suffering may be less. And that becomes a really, can become a really edgy, challenging practice. It's not obvious, it's not clear. We have to find our way. Later on um, in the same essay, Lord provides this, like, I think this really amazing um, image that I was like, oh, I kind of like that for an image of like a period of Zazen. So she says, um, during World War II, we bought sealed plastic packets of white, uncolored margarine with a tiny, intense pellet of yellow coloring perched like a topaz just inside the clear skin of the bag. We would leave the margarine out for a while to soften, and then we would pinch the little pellet to break it inside the bag, releasing the rich yellowness into the soft, pale mass of margarine. Then, taking it carefully between our fingers, we would gently knead it back and forth, over and over, until the color had spread throughout the whole pound bag of margarine, thoroughly coloring it. I find the erotic such a kernel within myself. When released from its intense and constrained pellet, it flows through and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all my experience. So in Zazen, as we sit, and abide in suchness or take up the practice of that. It's like as we're deepening into that, letting go, opening, softening, that like always ever-present Buddha mind is like being needed throughout the whole of our being. And you can see, you can see the result. 
You can feel it. In essence, it's the, um, you could think of it as like, okay, so we're practicing letting go. We're practicing accepting what is. We're practicing intimate contact with everything. There's a a poem that I um, wanted to share and kind of look at in terms of letting go and accepting what is and being in really intimate contact. This is a, a poem by a Chan nun from the seventh century, Fa Yuan. And she is, um, was a descendant of the famed Emperor Wu, who encountered Bodhidharma, supposedly, um, part of a royal family in the Tang dynasty, and who, as a young woman, um, had, had many talents and showed great intelligence, but was really not interested in courtly life, and asked her parents if she could ordain, and they apparently said yes. And so she lived as a nun in a um, early Chan convent. She would have been um, roughly around the same time as Hui Nang. So this is, this is the only extant poem of hers that um, at least that I'm aware of, that seems to be readily available. And I found it in this book um, called Daughters of Emptiness. This body without a self can be compared to floating duckweed. This body with its troubles is exactly like a leaf in the wind. This cycle of life and death is just like that of night and day. So I spent a little bit of time with this poem, and I'd love to share my thoughts on it. Um, Those first couple of lines, this body without a self can be compared to floating duckweed. So duckweed is like grows, you know, on ponds, still water, and it's one of those um, uh, kind of water plants that is very, very tiny. Each, each little leaf or petal is very, very tiny, but they grow extremely close together. And so it looks like one whole solid green thing on top of the water. Um, so, If you think, okay, well, she's comparing the body to floating duckweed, first of all, you know, there's there's the quality of, of, of the duckweed being on the surface. And then there's the quality of like, if you've ever, you know, been in a pond like that or or been rowing, that's what's coming to my mind, like paddling or rowing through that kind of almost algae-like surface. It's like it breaks, it looks solid, but as soon as your oar goes in, just like there's no resistance. It just goes right through. So she's um, 
actually painting a very vivid image of like, okay, what, what is this body actually? It looks so solid. It appears so solid. This self. But as we see, when we look, when we look and see the, 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 this thing that we're taking as solid and fixed, you know, right away, even, even the first time we sit down, we can see like, whoa, there's a lot going on. This self that I take myself to be, there's like an endless stream that's like creating my sense of who I am. Um, we may not even get to like that second part. We may just be like looking at the endless stream and sort of like, whoa. Um, I always think it's interesting when that experience of feeling like how practice is, is making, making you more distracted or like my mind's gotten busier since I started practicing. It's like, no, you just see it now. Um, and the other, the other thing that this, this metaphor brings up for me, you know, that insubstantiality of, of the self, there is a, I've been studying the Diamond Sutra, and um, throughout the, the Diamond Sutra speaks of the four misperceptions. So these four basic things that we are confused about are the, the, the existence of a self, of a being, of a lifespan, and of a soul. That's Red Pine's translation. And so it's kind of like, you know, you can look at that list, self being lifespan soul, and it's just like, it's just like they're trying to catch, trying to catch you at every, like wherever you might dodge to be like, okay, well, so fine, there's not a self, but there's definitely a being here. Like, no, 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 that's a misperception. So then we need to come in a little bit closer. That next um, couplet in the poem, this body with its troubles is exactly like a leaf in the wind. I was picturing a leaf being blown, right? Maybe even a leaf that's in a tree and the wind comes and blows it loose and how it's it's completely carried, it's completely at the mercy of the wind. That the leaf is not going to determine where it falls or how it falls. It's completely being carried by the wind. So she's saying this body with its troubles is exactly like a leaf in the wind. We're not in control is how I hear that. We're not in control. Life teaches us that sooner or later and sometimes in ways that bring us to our knees. And so how does that leaf fall in the wind? It, it kind of, it, it has to surrender. It has to let go into that um, draft. It has to let itself be carried. And so there's a way in which I think that's true, you know? We can respond, we can hold our experiences um, lightly, you know, we can, we can speak when it's time to speak and, and let go when it's time to let go, but it's not up to us what happens. And when we practice being attached 
or trying to control, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It just leads to suffering. And we can recognize that while our body is the leaf, our mind, heart, has no limit, has no boundary. The universal self living through the individual self. Uchiyama Roshi speaks about the difference of between living by vow and living by karma. And I, I think I remember that Gokan brought this up in a, a talk not too long ago. And so as practitioners, you know, as ordinary sort of, ordinarily we're always living by karma. Cause and effect are playing out and we're just kind of responding pretty much according to habits and patterns. And, and living by vow is, um, is, is now, okay, there's an intention and we're not just going to respond through our habituated pattern responses, but we're going to place something very powerful and important, a vow, and guide our, let that guide our life, let that guide our responses. So like living by vow is like a miraculous response to that leaf body. To be blown through by the like tides and 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 drafts of of life, and um, and 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 orient continually. This comes and this comes, and you have your your vow to orient to. So as we're being blown about, that we're not hating that, that we're not trying to like you know I don't know weigh ourselves down or keep ourselves on a string or like, I don't know, not, not fall off the tree to begin with, but to respond, be present, awake. It takes trust. It takes really a lot of trust in ourself. And that's something that we're also cultivating all the time when we sit. Accepting what is, responding in accord. And then to be intimate with the 10,000 things. So the last two lines of the poem, this cycle of life and death is just like that of night and day. What is she saying? Why does she end it this way? When we're really um, intimate, there's no beginning, there's no end. Those are concepts, right, that we put on top of our experience. When we speak about night and day, can you see, like we're, we're putting a concept, an idea, on an actual live experience. 
When, when, when does the night end and the day begin? Is there a moment? When does it stop being daytime and begin to be nighttime? We bring that to the passage of the sun that never ceases as it appears to move across the sky. We bring that night and day. We bring life and death, too. No being, no lifespan, no soul, no self. When I was on Hermitage a couple of weeks ago, I was... um, it was evening, and I had made a fire in the fire pit outside, and um, I was just sitting there as the fire sort of burned down. And um, I remembered that passage from Genjo Koan where he talks about the firewood and the ash, which has always been like, it's, I, I, I don't have it here, but it's like, you know, he says, um, it's basically like we look at the firewood and we say like, okay, it's going to become ash after. And we look at the ash and we think like, okay, that used to be firewood. And he, um, in his inimitable way, is like, no, 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 no. Firewood is just firewood and ash is just ash. It has its own before and after. But don't start thinking that the firewood was ash and is going to be, become, um, or that the, the, oh, I think I just got confused. <laughs> that the firewood is going to become ash, or that the ash was firewood. Um, and I was like taking in the fire and like, can I, can I like see what he's saying, you know? Can I, can I see that teaching of um, so intimate, right? Zen sometimes talks about like momentariness, just, just right there in the moment without that conceptual overlay. And, um, you know, we need, we need our concepts. They, they're, they're part of the relative world. It's like there are two arrows, and the conceptual reality that we're in is, um, has its own wonders and glories, for sure. Um, but it's, it's not the whole picture. And when we mistake it for the whole picture, uh, we end up causing harm, because... It's an incorrect view. So then you can look and see, like, okay, well, so if there's not night, per se, and day, this cycle, the cycle of life and death, um, I didn't write it down, I don't think, but there's a... um, passage from um, Dream Conversations um, where he talks about um, passing through the death experience to merge with the cosmos. That's what it was. Yeah. And so I, I was just thinking about that. Like, okay, death is just another experience. Then you merge with the cosmos. 
So can you call it death? We're just putting a label onto that flow. Uchiyama Roshi says, we live within the flow of impermanence, maintaining a temporary form similar to an eddy in the flow of a river. Though the water is always flowing, the eddy arises out of the various conditions as a form that seems to be fixed. That there is this seemingly fixed form that is based on various conditions is interdependence. In the case of the eddy, it is the volume and speed of the current, the topography and so forth, that form the conditions of its existence. When those conditions change, that eddy won't be there. When these conditions change, or these conditions change, or these conditions change, you and I won't be here. Where will we be? So, this is why we train in like just sweeping the floor, just cutting the apple, just weeding the garden. Because it's always this way. It's always this way. But we have to put down our habits in order to see that. And sometimes we see it in a, and sometimes it's just that we're finally relaxed. The endless miracle unspooling. All those moments in the training day that are sort of like reminding us, reminding us. It's so easy to coast through them. Coast through them, let them become habit. Mindlessly chant. But they're there so we can plug in and connect and remember. And with that remembering, it's our power. Audre Lorde says, when we begin to live from within, outward, when we begin to live from within, outward, right? Instead of just out, 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 sometimes something comes in and we don't really know what it is, but we're reacting. We are. Audre Lorde says, when we begin to live from within outward, to touch with the power of the erotic within ourselves and allowing that power to inform and illuminate our actions upon the world around us. So we could say, when we begin to live from within outward in touch with the power of the awakened Buddha mind within ourselves and allowing that power to inform and illuminate our actions upon the world around us, then we begin to be responsible to ourselves in the deepest sense. 
For as we begin to recognize our deepest feelings, we begin to give up of necessity, being satisfied with our suffering and self-negation, and with the numbness that so often seems like their only alternative in our society. Our acts against oppression become integral with self, motivated and empowered from within. I think about Reverend Angel saying there's no liberation without collective liberation. That that inner outer divide is just conceptual, actually. So to take care in a deep way of our own path and practice, to do our own work, and then to encounter other beings. And feel into, like, where, where am I creating separation? Why do I see self and other? What happens if I just let go of this one little piece of that and come in a little closer? And maybe a little closer. We're so blessed to um, have the causes and conditions that enable us to practice the Dharma. And it's right there. It's right there, right there, co-emergent with all of the teachings on liberation that that, that that is, is self and other. So to continue to question and challenge and, and wonder about how does this universal self live through this individual self? How do I do that? Even if I don't really see it or get it or understand it, how do I do that? What is this practice of letting go? How can I bring that alive? Develop trust in it. What is this practice of accepting what is? What's on the other side when we really deeply accept? Stop trying to fight with reality. What is this practice of really being intimate? Again and again, we chant, may we realize the Buddha way together. It's the only way it's going to happen. May we realize the Buddha way together. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, 
please visit us online at zmm.org.